Welcome to episode 16 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. Today we have Rory Davis, who is a PhD student at Western University, who has spent the last four years studying basic income systems and their potential fit in Canadian society. His research has incorporated the voices of advocates, critics, and aid recipients. In his talk, he will provide a synopsis of the effect basic income had on test participants and an overview of how basic income works in comparison to other systems of social security and the dangers to look out for. Now on to the talk. Well, good evening, everyone, and thank you all for coming out to support the Humanist Association of London and Area and to learn a little bit about basic income at the same time. Uh, it's good to see that interest in basic income hasn't faded in the wake of the cancellation of Ontario's pilot program. Uh, I would like to give credit to two main contributors for the content that I have to present to you this evening. First off, to Evelyn Forger and her new book, Basic Income for Canadians, which I think is a great place to get started learning about basic income. And second, to Jesse Gollum, who uh, is a photographer working out of Hamilton who produced an incredible photo series showcasing the impact basic income had on people's lives. So tonight, I'm going to discuss four broad topics with you. I'm going to show you how basic income differs from the social security system that you're probably more familiar with. And then I'm going to talk about the effects that basic income had on pilot test participants. Third, I'm going to discuss the danger that comes with implementing a new program like basic income. And I'm also going to talk some about the mythical dangers or false red flags as I like to call them. And then finally, I'll talk about how basic income fits with the Canadian economy, which like many economies around the world is seeing increased numbers of precarious jobs. All right, well, let's get started with how basic income works differently from other social security. Now, the highlight here is that basic income does not depend on a person's behavior. And by that, I mean that people will have a right to a basic income whether or not they prove they've looked for work or attended any skills training to prepare for work. And the skills training process has been described by some of my participants as a degrading and patronizing experience. So it'd be a good thing to shed. Uh, no one is going to tell basic income recipients how to spend their money or their time. Once again, highlighting that the program will avoid micromanaging people's lives. It doesn't carry the assumption that the poor are lazy cheats. In fact, basic income is about investing money in people and trusting them to do what is right for themselves and their families with it. And we can contrast this with a workfare type system, such as Ontario Works. That focuses on discretionary access to aid. Caseworkers are specifically assigned to weed out the undeserving applicants. And that is because workfare carries with it the assumption that welfare recipients are deviants who require monitoring. Uh, this can include drug testing, parental fitness checkups, and living arrangement checkups in order to make sure no one is living beyond their means. Uh, you might ask, but aren't people living in poverty at higher risk of drug use, inadequate parenting, and fraud? Well, to that I'd say, even if that were true, why is our system setting them up with only poverty-level support? Why is it setting them up to fail? And the only answer given is that workfare is looking to protect the taxpayer. And by delivering minimal aid and clawing even that back as soon as possible, and the clawback, it should be noted, creates a strong disincentive to participating in the labor force. Working becomes a losing proposition for many. So this type of system has been called paternalistic, and that's because caseworkers are made to act as if they were parents watching over naughty children. And that's our system all to safeguard a monthly allowance sum of roughly $720 per month case dependent. So I find it can be helpful to look at both systems side by side and focus in on some of their priorities and some of their effects. 
in order to show just how different they are. For basic income, the goal is to eliminate poverty and to provide universally available financial security that does not depend on work. Some of the effects of this include new human capital investment, which means people are using the money to invest in themselves, whether that means going back to school or taking an unpaid internship to develop new skills or experiences. And of course, not everything is perfect. There are certain to be some layabouts who choose not to be productive at all, but they're in the minority. In general, people always want to work. And those who do may find employers in a more tenuous bargaining position than they used to be. Odds are wages are going to need to go up when these empowered basic income workers hit the scene. Finally, I can report that pilot studies have shown basic income reduce the perceived stigma of getting help, combated stress, depression, and anxiety, and also reduced the incidence of domestic abuse. Now on the other side, Ontario Works has the goal of preventing parasitism. It focuses on the layabout that I described earlier and generalizes him to everyone. It looks to lift taxpayer burden and minimize the amount of welfare fraud. And the effect of Ontario Works system is often that it passes the cost off to other charitable organizations such as food banks and even invites a degree of criminality because people will struggle to find a way to live. And of course, this feeds into a greater stigmatization of the poor and the creation of an us versus them mentality. So on a bit of a deeper philosophic level, we can see a clash of two philosophical systems, both of which are imperfectly represented by the welfare state. Ontario Works seeks its validation through the old adage, he who does not work, neither shall he eat, a notion that comes from Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 in the New Testament. Of course, there's also the Catholic concept of sloth as a deadly sin against idleness and mischief, and all of this draws on a negative view of human nature and the need for paternalistic guidance. Basic income, on the other hand, takes inspiration from libertarianism. Now, I have to be careful here because there are at least two very different strands of libertarianism, on the left and on the right. And on the right, you have theory going back as far as John Locke and his fundamental law that placed three duties on citizens. A duty to support yourself, a duty to not interfere with the others in their supporting of themselves, and to help others whenever it's possible to do so. Modern right libertarians like Milton Friedman read interference as government interference and help as private philanthropy only. And therefore, they call for an end to all government support programs with the exception of basic income. Left libertarians are different. They want to preserve government programs and focus in on the goal of maximizing freedom, both to do things and to be free from coercion. They see maximized freedom only being possible with a certain level of government intervention on behalf of the And for one last piece that I want to fit in here from psychology, Eric Fromm was well aware of basic income, and he was excited by the idea that it could move us in a direction of a psychology of abundance and away from a psychology of scarcity, with scarcity being associated with greed, envy, anxiety, egotism, and hoarding, and abundance being associated with faith in life, solidarity, initiative, and community. So... While Ontario Works may fail in some aspects of social justice, it still seeks its virtue in the field of economics. Both OW and ODSP cost a mere $10 billion per year. Compare that to the projected federal cost of providing basic income to all 18 to 64-year-old Canadians, which is pegged at approximately $76 billion per year. But there's still hope. For one, we're talking provincial versus federal funding, and the federal government already contributes $32.9 billion to supporting low-income Canadians. 
Next, if refundable and non-refundable tax credits and some special programs get scrapped, then we can bring the cost down to $43.1 billion per year. Finally, tossing out provincial welfare like Ontario Works and ODSP brings the federal cost down to only $23 billion per year. And as journalist Andrew Cohen said, three points on the GST to end poverty starts to sound like a good deal. And all of this without tapping into any utopian funding from a higher corporate tax rate or a wealth tax or a new capital gains tax. Things that probably ought to be, but that put basic income in conflict with powerful interest groups that could shut it down. Now, I can tell already that these uh, blurbs are not visible, but that's okay. I'm prepared to read them off to you. And this research, once again, comes from Jesse Gollum and her photo project in Hamilton. So starting at the top and then moving row by row left to right. Photo one. Basic income alleviated my stress when my income wasn't enough each month. I am precariously employed. I am a full-time student and a beginning manual therapist in my community. Photo two. Universal basic income has helped me become an active volunteer, artist, and entrepreneur. It can do the same for you, too. Photo 3. Basic income has allowed me to be able to afford to eat healthy, fresh food, not stress about money, and pay my bills on time. Photo 4. Universal basic income enabled me to buy my new walker. I ask you, Premier Doug Ford, where is my next walker coming from after you cruelly cut UBI? can always trust little old ladies to not mince words. Uh, photo 5. Basic income was helping me cover expenses for a chronic health condition, find a place to live, and get a used vehicle so that I can focus once more on bringing my skills and passion back to the world. And lastly, 406. The basic income program helped us to move to a better apartment in a safer neighborhood and feel financially secure enough to go back to school to get a better job. Now, I have three more general highlights about the impact basic income had on pilot participants' lives. The first being that they were able to live with more dignity. The Mincome study in Dauphin, Manitoba showed that families didn't perceive basic income as traditional welfare. And we can theorize that this may have been the case because there were no caseworkers treating them with suspicion. The shame that people felt receiving welfare just didn't correspond to what they felt when they got basic income, something everyone was receiving. And let's also note that the working poor in Canada are one of the most important new groups that could receive assistance under a basic income program. This group of impoverished workers has always outnumbered aid recipients and never received assistance. And despite the common wisdom that once you have a job, you can begin pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, I think the number of workers living in poverty speaks to how dysfunctional this idea truly is and how it ignores the fact that opportunity depends on what's going on at levels of the labor market that workers simply do not control. Another key finding from Canadian pilot tests is that work continued. The Mincoming experiment in particular showed that basic income had little effect on how many hours people worked, and those who did work less tended to come from populations that we might want to see working less. One of those was young males who chose to complete high school, instead of joining the labor force immediately in order to bolster their family's income. The other group were single mothers who chose to stay at home with young children, leading to less money spent on daycare and fewer school-aged children becoming latchkey kids. And we should also talk about how basic income generated a work stimulus. New entrepreneurial ventures were made possible by the availability of startup money. And for existing small businesses, it added security to deal with unexpected events. For example, a farm family that sold vegetables at a local market could confidently buy a new farm truck and keep their business afloat because they were able to rely on income. 
Finally, and perhaps most critically, I want to talk about how basic income helped people achieve a better quality of life in terms of health and happiness. Hospital visits fell by 8.5% relative to control groups, and families reported better mental health in terms of less stress, anxiety, and depression. Accidents and injuries also declined, which is something we might attribute to more dangerous work being refused, and less domestic violence and self-harm was occurring. At the community level, we have reports of more social cohesion and better community health. And this can come from very small things, like having a bit of extra money to go out for a beer after work. Something that seems inconsequential, but that puts workers in contact with their workmates outside the work setting. Another positive is the increased investment in community volunteer work, which I can only guess comes from a more general feeling of solidarity. Okay, now I want to move on to examining some of the dangers that we need to look out for if basic income returns to the policy forefront. Firstly, is the program providing adequate security for aid recipients? If the essential security of being able to afford food, housing, and essentials isn't happening, then the goals of basic income are simply not being met. Second, are there cuts coming to other social programs besides Ontario Works and ODSP? Say, for example, are education and healthcare privatization being packaged along with basic income? Well, if they are, then whether the program is called basic income or not, I would not be in support of it, and I would encourage others not to support it either. There are some finer details that also demand careful consideration, such as who is it exactly that receives the basic income check? Is it be sent to the individual or the family? And if it's the family, then who exactly gets the money? Does the lowest earner get to decide where the family's basic income goes? Or does the government need to always send the check to the family matriarch? Mothers have traditionally shown themselves to be better judges of how to spend money in a way that benefits children, but it's still an open question. Also, how do we prevent people from misrepresenting their circumstances? I chose the Canada Child Benefit as a comparison here because it's in a lot of ways similar to basic income. But the Canada Child Benefit, for all its virtues, does grant single mothers additional assistance, which has led to some cases of falsified documents being submitted with regard to the presence of a partner or boyfriend. Basic income gives government bureaucrats a chance to rework things in a way that reduces the incentive to be deceptive. And although I'm sure many will find it distasteful to not grant additional aid to people who are legitimately worse off, if basic income is adequate at its base rate, then perhaps the sting won't be too severe. And of course, children as additional family members should always increase the amount of basic income money that a family receives. Now, onto the false red flags. These are the alarmist attacks that make basic income seem like an unworthy or dangerous program that needs to be dismissed outright. Flag number one is that basic income is a covert attack that is designed to weaken social security and leave everyone worse off. Well, first off, yes, I did list this as a legitimate concern to watch out for. But as far as being a reason to dismiss basic income, I definitely feel that would be premature. So far, the basic income that we have pilot tested here in Ontario has not been a Trojan horse attack on social welfare. It's substituted for Ontario Works and ODSP but everything else remained in place, including fundamental programs like health, education, and labor legislation. And I want everyone here to note that basic income is not and should never be a cure-all or silver bullet policy. It is meant to work alongside other existing social programs and only in tandem will it achieve its best results. Flag number two, by simplifying welfare, basic income will make it easier for government to impose new cuts 
and this is somehow more difficult for it to do with a complex, inefficient system. This reasoning is flatly false. The complexity of Ontario's system has never prevented its government from making cutbacks. In the end, there is no advantage to poor design, and relying on wasteful bureaucracy to protect our social security just doesn't work, especially when those funds could be directed straight into actual financial aid for people who need it. Flag number three. Getting rid of bureaucracy will mean the end of a lot of good administrative jobs. This may be true, and there's a good chance that these jobs are the only good jobs in some small communities. But it doesn't have to be the end of these workers' employment. If people are no longer required to work at enforcing existing regulations, then there is a new opportunity to redeploy these highly educated caseworkers into more socially useful tasks that will actually help low-income people navigate their life hurdles. I can say with confidence that it is always better to employ people in useful tasks, tasks these workers would no doubt prefer to be doing, rather than waste their talents rooting out people in need just to preserve a dysfunctional role in a cruel system that just happens to also mean a well-paid job. The fourth flag is that a basic income is just a wage subsidy for low-paying employers, that it, in effect, by giving workers government money, just ends up saving employers money, costing taxpayers money, and ultimately leaving workers no better off. This is the favored argument of the Canadian Trades and Labour Congress. It is an argument they also brought up when family allowance was introduced in Canada. But it's a clear case of misattributing causes and vulnerabilities. Labour legislation and minimum wage law are where the prevention of employers manipulating the system has to occur. These have to work in tandem with basic income, and vulnerabilities in this legislation just can't be basic income's burden. Now, if we look at the evidence from income, we actually see the opposite effect happened. Employers had to raise wages because workers had more bargaining power. As one disgruntled employer put it, income is just spoiling people rotten and upsetting the workforce something unreal. It's making it impossible for the average worker to even stand a chance at hiring help. For the fifth flag, let's take that employer's uh, complaint seriously for a moment. What if no one will do the dirty work, the unpleasant jobs? I mean, someone has to do it, right? And maybe if it's something the employer can't afford to spend a lot of money paying someone to do. I can sympathize with this. But how can we ever say that the freedom to reject work is a bad thing? If employers will not or cannot increase the amount of money needed to get someone to do a job, then they may very well shift production abroad, automate, or shut down. In any of these cases, basic income would be there for the displaced workers as they adjust giving them security to take their time and search for more equitable work, or acquire new skills so that they can fit into another role in our economy. The final flag is one that my own father is fond of bringing up to me, and that is that basic income will just make the price of everything go up. And once again, this worry is based on expecting basic income to control things that are outside of its domain. In the right-wing libertarian utopia, recall that's getting rid of all government except for basic income, this would be a very valid concern, because it takes government intervention to prevent this. Price increases are going to happen whether or not there is a basic income. Just look at the Ford government's decision to lift rent control laws that just happened without any consideration of basic income. We can't get around the fact that we need price control legislation in place to prevent any direct price adjustment to come up whenever a new social assistance appears. In terms of some local prices going up as businesses try to gain a piece of the new disposable income that low earners have, I guess we'll just have to trust the market, as Milton Friedman would say, and trust that consumer pressure 
to only pay what a thing is worth. Now let's talk a bit about how basic income fits with the Canadian job market. This job market contains a lot of titles that you may have heard of, including temporary employment, contract work, non-standard work, and the old-fashioned part-time job. All, of, all part of what economists like to call a flexible workforce, but that I, from a more humanist perspective, would prefer to call precarious employment. And this type of employment has consequences for workers. All forms of insecure work cause serious mental distress, health, and lifestyle concerns for Canadians. I don't mean this as a rally speech, but I honestly believe that if employers are demanding this type of labor arrangement, then workers deserve a basic income to preserve their own quality of life. I don't see this as undue entitlement. Consider that despite a very high level of post-secondary education among millennials, only 44% of them have found permanent full-time employment. Another 47% are working in jobs with some degree of insecurity including one-third who are on short-term contracts or working through a temp agency. And in case you're wondering, or can even make it out from here, SER is a standard employment relationship, meaning that you work full-time with one employer for at least 30 hours per week ongoing. And note that in this chart, SER only accounts for 44 to 59% of employment in the Hamilton area. It's a 2007 statistic. 2017, my mistake. So... What we're left to contend with is a great deal of economic insecurity. Evelyn Forget noted that economic insecurity is the defining characteristic of our age, and it is not synonymous with poverty. Persistent poverty is a problem in Canada, but so too is the insecurity of those who are not now poor, but who may become poor at a moment's notice. Now, at this point, I could throw up more charts from various regions and graphs to demonstrate that economic insecurity is a problem that needs to be addressed. But for tonight, I chose instead to include some stories that I think really humanize the issue and speak with a bit more personality than statistics. So case number one is Dylan. Dylan, who has two master's degrees, one in economics and one in disability studies. He has worked at reasonably well-paying jobs in the healthcare sector, but always on temporary contracts with no pension and few benefits. There is never a guarantee that his contract will be renewed or even a suggestion that it might one day lead to a permanent position. Note that despite his credentials, the job sector Dylan is seeking employment in simply isn't offering permanent positions with benefits. Dylan has done all that we could reasonably expect of him, but he's still at the mercy of what employers in that particular job sector are offering. Case number two is Debbie. Debbie, who earned her PhD in anthropology five years ago and lives in a large Canadian city, teaches one to two courses, sometimes three, and shuttles between employers but has no job security, no sick leave, and no benefits. She can't find time to publish articles to make her a full-time professor, and she wonders how she could afford to have a child before she runs out of biological time. So here I want to highlight how economic insecurity invades our personal lives and our private decision-making. Debbie does not feel secure enough in her situation to confidently make the decision to have a child, and her position is that of a professor who teaches at the university level. Not the typical situation thought of as insecure and precarious. Lastly, there's Pete. Pete, who lives in Ontario and until recently worked at a factory job manufacturing automobile parts. But to compete internationally, the firm decided that costs had to fall. Some of the work is now done outside the country, and most of what is done in Canada is heavily automated. Workers have been replaced by machines. The investment paid off for the owners, but guys like Pete just find themselves living in small towns with houses that aren't appreciating in value 
the way they do in Toronto, and living in a community that is aging as young people leave to find outside work. Pete's story highlights that in a globalized, transnational economy, it's tough to see any manufacture work as ever being truly secure. And to new technology, which really ought to make everyone's lives better, is instead controlled by capital interests and is made to be a looming threat hanging over worker security. I want to share a note on automation as well. Now, technology has always eliminated jobs, but I think it's premature for anyone to but a futurist to predict a full-scale replacement of Canada's workforce by automated manufacture and distribution. Even with self-driving cars and automated checkouts, I think we're a few years away from a major labor disruption via a robotics revolution. But what we are seeing today is how new technology has had the effect of de-skilling many jobs that used to require highly trained professionals. This has led to many full-time jobs becoming part-time precarious jobs and probably causes a lot of former professionals to reconsider their career path. On this note, I think that basic income has great utility as a transitional period fund. Career trajectories may need to change multiple times in a single lifetime, and to avoid suffering and distress in the periods of retraining and employment seeking, Canadians deserve a robust basic income program. That is actually all the content that I have prepared for tonight. So in conclusion, let's just recap. Basic income is significantly different from the workfare social security system. Basic income has lifted pilot test participants up and inspired them to improve their lives. There are dangers to watch out for when implementing a new social security system, but there are also a lot of overblown worries that we shouldn't let stand in the way of moving forward. The Canadian job market already contains a significant number of precarious jobs, and basic income helps minimize the suffering brought on by this type of an economy. One last thing, though. I want to invite everyone to attend a symposium happening at the end of this month. It's happening at Innovation Works right here in London. And if you're looking to get involved with the Basic Income London group who are still actively campaigning to have Basic Income brought back, I know that several members will be present and they'll be looking for new members. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening.